Now open up to Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, please. Hebrews chapter 6. and <clears throat> We're going to uh, work through uh, verses 9 to 20 this, this morning. And all that God saves are, you know, made alive in Him and have been given a new heart and they have marks of godly diligence that is seen. Not just starting in the beginning, but will continue. And the hope of God's promises to the final day has been the argument here of the writer of Hebrews. And he has given us a passage to really chew on that we looked at last week. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And reminding them to continue to press forward and to persevere and to endure in the faith. And he has told them that... If it were possible for you to fall away, there's no way you could come back. There's no in or out with God. and So he continues them to, to, to persevere in the faith. He's already said in chapter 3 that those who are partakers in Christ hold their confidence firm until the end. So he's laid out that someone who is a true, genuine believer in Jesus Christ is eternally secure. And they, their, their, their faith will be worked out through the whole of their lifetime. Though there may be sin, there is repentance. There is a direction they are set in. There are marks of true faith. In Hebrews chapter 6, in verses 9 to 20, they believe he's going to show us three things and give three exhortations to his readers from this passage that are going to carry over in our lives here. He's going to tell them to imitate the pattern in verses 9 to 15. He's going to tell them to grasp the promise in verses 16 through 18. And he's going to tell them in the last couple verses to look to the person. To look to the person. We saw last week in verses 1 through really 11 or 12, we saw that God desires His people to not be standing still, to not be sluggish, but to move in growing disciples, meaning that they are moving disciples, moving in Christ's likeness, being conformed to the image of Christ. And then we saw last week that growing disciples are listening disciples. They respond to the Word of God. They hear the warnings of God. He gives a couple strong warnings in verse 6 and verse 8. And then we saw last week that growing disciples are rewarded disciples. Because in verse 9 he says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Then verse 8 and verse 6. And things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Folks, I believe in this passage here, verses 9 through 15, he tells them to imitate the pattern. To imitate the pattern. That's what I want us to see this morning. There's a pattern to imitate. The previous verses in 1 through 8, he's made it very clear. There's only one way to be free from the fires of hell. In verse 8, the curse, thorns, briars, that will in their end be burned. 
Be free from the curse of God. And that one way is Jesus Christ alone. He's telling them there is no turning back. There is no turning back. And verses 9 and 10 tell us that He is sure that they are in Christ alone. And they are bearing fruit by their love for the brethren. That they are Christ's disciples. Indeed, they are walking in His ways. He says, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. He tells them in verse 9 and 10. Verse 11, he tells them that the key is that they are to keep up the good work till the end. And not to grow lazy in Christ. And he tells them how to do that in verse 12. He says in verse 11, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Unto the end. To continue that work to the end. And then in verse 12, he says, That ye be not slothful. That's what he had warned them about. That they were becoming slothful. In chapter 5, in verse 11, when he says, Seeing you are dull of hearing, that word dull is the same word. Slothful, lazy. Lazy. And he says, imitate those. Imitate those. Follower, be followers, verse 12. The word followers, it's a word that Paul uses a few times in his epistles where he says, be followers of me, be imitators of me. It's a word that literally means be mimics, be mimics. But here the writer of Hebrews is saying, be imitators, followers, mimics of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what had been promised. Well, the question is, well, who are those? Because we would need to know who we're supposed to imitate. And I believe the answer is the, those who have gone before. He'll talk a little bit more about that in chapter 11, won't he? But he brings one character to mind, quickly passes over him, but gives one character to mind in this passage as the person Abraham. The person Abraham. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what had been promised. And the idea there of faith and patience, that word patience is a word that in in Galatians 5 is translated long-suffering. Long-suffering. If you have a two-year-old, you know what it's like to be long-suffering. Or you know what it's like to not be long-suffering. One way or the other. And that's the idea here of, of long suffering is to endure, to plod along, faithful perseverance. This word that's uh, used of patience in verse 12, or long suffering, is used of God. God, there is no one more long suffering than God. Let me show you in 1 Peter 3.20 uh, how this word is used, patience. 1 Peter 3.20 <clears throat> Talking about the wicked, in verse 20, Peter says, Which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. How long a gap happened between the time that God spoke to Noah and said, Build an ark, and the rain, first raindrop fell? 120 years. 120 years. God told Noah, there's a flood coming. Build an ark. Now, that ark couldn't have held all humanity. But 1 Peter tells us that Noah preached, 
preached to the generation for 120 years of the refuge that was in the ark. How many were saved, though, from that flood? No one is family, right? No one is family. That's it. But God was long-suffering. He, he didn't just, he didn't just uh, give them one day. That would have been enough, wouldn't it? He didn't give them one week, not even a year. God gave them 120 years of warning. And nobody listened. So that word long-suffering means a continuation. There was a continual word from, 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 from God to the, to the world through Noah to be saved through the ark. And here in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer says that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and long-suffering inherit the promises. Our God is long-suffering, so he is telling these readers, God enabled other people before you to be long-suffering as well, and be long-suffering. Continue, persevere, endure, endure because of the long-suffering of God. Then he gives an example in verse 13 of someone who displayed this persevering, this trusting God's promises to the end. Verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sware by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. He says, Here is exhibit A, Abraham. Now, God reached up to Abraham and told him to leave his country and to leave the city of Ur and go to a land that he would promise for me to make a great nation out of him. And Abraham moved out of Ur and he, and he tarried with, uh, uh, in Haran and, um, and uh, uh, another place. And there God said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and you're going to have a son. And when God told him that, Abraham was about 75 years old. But he did not have a son until 25 years after that or so. 24 years. 99. God promised you and your wife will birth a son. But that didn't happen the next year. That didn't happen the next five years. That happened 25 years after he was already 75 years old. And here we have an example of a man who through ups and downs, faults and failures, firm trust, yet God says in Romans chapter 4, verse 19 through 21, the summary of this man's life. Romans 4, 19 says this. And being not weak in faith, he, Abraham, considered not his own body, now dead, when he is about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, God, he, was able also to perform, and therefore was imputed to him for righteousness. Here's Abraham. God promises you're going to have a son. It doesn't happen until 25 years later. So there's someone to imitate, Abraham. Abraham had questions. He had doubts. In fact, sometimes he tried to force his own hand. But he refocused. He kept refocusing. And he endured that space of 25 years of God's promise, and he reaped the benefits of that when Isaac was born. 
Imitate the faith. Imitate. But secondly, grasp the promise. There's a promise to be grasped, and I want you to see that here in verse 16. Now in verse 13, he already has said that God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. God promised by, by committing all that he was, entering in an oath based upon himself. And he's going to pick up that thought again in verse 16. For men, humanity, verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. This, in other words, is how he says mankind makes promises under oath. We promise by something greater than us. When you were a kid, you said, so stick a needle in my eye, right? Promise. Promise. Um, When you were in the courtroom, you put your hand on the Bible and you say what? I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me. God, right. Why? Because that Bible there just magically uh, uh, oozes truth into your arms and through your body and your mind? No. Because you recognize there is a high standard. When a president is sworn into office, he is sworn upon, uh, uh, puts his hand upon the Bible and swears upon the Bible to, to do the duties of, of the office. Um, if you go to New York City, and you go near Wall Street, there's a museum there. And in the museum is the very Bible that uh, George Washington uh, was, was sworn in on. Uh, I believe they used it for Abraham Lincoln. And I believe George W. Bush and maybe a couple of the presidents used that uh, Bible as well. Um, why do we do that? Why do we put our hand on the Bible in court and say, so help me God? Because we're making a serious promise and we're showing that we are swearing by something, some, something greater than ourselves. Now Jesus had to approach the Israelites in Matthew 5, the Jewish people, and he said, you guys swear by Jerusalem. You guys swear by the temple. You guys swear by heaven or earth. And your word should just be yes or no. You shouldn't have to say, I'm really going to be telling the truth this time, right? You shouldn't have to do that if you're God's people, he says. But mankind does that. Because we're not a very truthful people. What about God? What about God, who has never lied? Never. In all eternity. And will never lie. Who everything he has said will happen, happens and is truthful. Who, who is God going to be under oath to? Is there somebody greater than God who he's going to say, I'm going to make an oath under this being who's greater than me? No! So who can he promise? Well, first of all, here's the question. Does God need to make an oath? No. What he says is true no matter what. But the writer here says that in order to provide, to provide incentive, to provide motivation for our trust in God and how worthy he is to be trusted and how he is truthful, that God didn't just make a promise. God made a promise under oath. Why did he do that? Well, God cannot make a promise under oath to anybody else besides himself. So verse 13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And verse 16 says, For men barely swear by the greater, and oath for confirmation is them an end of all strife. It settles it. When you 
make an oath in court. But verse 17 says, Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the unchangeableness, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. He swore by himself. What does that mean, he swore by himself? God promised on the basis of his character that he would perform this promise that he made to Abraham. On the basis of all that he is, God's omniscience, he knows everything. God's omnipresence, he's everywhere. God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. God's perfect truthfulness. God's holiness. God's perfect love. God's perfect wrath. On the basis of all that he is and all his character, he swore by that, saying that if this is not true, I cease to be God. All that he is, all that he's done, and all that he will do, God based his promise on. And the writer here says in verse 18, that by two unchangeable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, hope, who have fled for refuge to take hold upon the hope set before us. Two things. What two things? First of all, the first thing is that he gave a promise. If God says something, that's good enough, isn't it? That's good enough because he says it. He's truthful. But he gave two things. He didn't just give a promise, but he put himself under oath. Under oath. As if he had to do that. But why did he do that? Not for his own benefit. He didn't need to impress himself with his truthfulness. Why did he, put, why did he uh, make a promise of himself? Because he, because the verse tells us, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hopes that before us. The Bible tells us in the book of Corinthians that the promises of God are yes and no in Jesus Christ. He not only gave a promise, but God himself under oath in Christ made good on that promise. And verse 18, as I read, tells us why. He did this to give us an incentive to believe this is how much He loves us and this is how much He is for us. He accommodates, as that song we sang, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. He accommodates our frailty. He accommodates our shakingness. He accommodates us by not only saying the promise, but making an oath. That's how much God loves you. That's how much. Something you didn't need to do. He makes an oath. And these believers that the writer is writing to were probably wondering. They were perhaps waffling. Do I go back? Do I continue on? Is this worth it? And the writer is assuring them that under God, he has staked his life on the promises of heaven. And they can endure, continue in that. And it is real. It is true. And he's telling them, don't let your present circumstances keep your eyes from future hope. And folks, wherever you are at, whatever you are facing, temptations to sin, trials that make you wonder, do not let your present circumstances distract you from your eternal focus. 
It is your eternal focus and the promise of life with God forever that takes you through the next second, the next minute, the next hour, the next week of whatever you are trudging through. Don't let your present circumstances keep your eyes from future hope. Fix your eyes on Jesus, your future hope. There's something wonderful here in the end of verse 18 that I think the writer is bringing up as an illustration for us. He says, who have fled for, what's that word? Refuge. To lay hold, to grasp upon the hope set before us. That word refuge, it's a, it's a, it's a word that in a, in a Hebrew mind might bring up a picture of six cities in Israel. If you were an Israelite and you were uh, working at your job and perhaps you were cutting down a tree and and, uh, the axe head of your axe flew off and killed the man you were working with accidentally. God provided a way for those who unintentionally uh, killed another person. He instituted six cities called cities of refuge. There are three on each side of the Jordan River. And if you found yourself in a situation where something like that happened, and Moses lost as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you pay with your life for the life of another that you took. God provided a city called the city of refuge, in which you could run and flee to. You could find the altar in that city, and you'd grab the horns of that altar, and as long as you resided in that city of refuge, you would be safe from revenge. From that person's family. But you had to stay there. Till the priest in that city. Was dead. And then you could be released. Without consequences. You can read about it in Numbers 35 if you'd like. Verse 6 and 9 through 23. Cities of Refuge. But the picture is so rich here. Because he says, we have fled for refuge. To lay hold upon the hope set before us. You know in the gospel, you are under the wrath of God Almighty for your sin. Facing an absolute real hell for all eternity. And... Jesus Christ has stepped between you and the wrath of God and absorbed that on your behalf. And you flee to Him for that city of refuge. And you lay hold on the horns of the altar of Jesus Christ's work. You claim the blood of Jesus Christ and His finished work on your behalf. But you know what? This priest, he never dies, he is risen. He's exalted. This priest is alive forever. And you are in him forever. You are in him forever. And so the writer is telling these people, Believe God and patiently endure. Which is a hard thing for us Americans, because we have a microwave satisfaction level. We want something, we put it in the microwave. We're hungry, we go to the fast food, right? We don't understand the long-term nature of the Christian life. The writer here says, here's how you chop away at that wrong thinking. You believe God and His promise at the end, 
and that takes you through your circumstances. You patiently endure. Get rid of this concept of microwave satisfaction and take every hour by God's grace. I need thee every hour, the song says. You see, so much of the benefits of our salvation is future, isn't it? We received all of Christ that we could ever receive. Understand that. But so much of the reward is at the end, isn't it? It's at the end. And that's why the writer of Hebrews tells them in chapter 12 to look unto Jesus, the beginner and completer of our faith. So it's important to, 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 to uh, 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 live our lives around the mark of that future salvation. And that's why Paul says in Romans 13, at the end, he tells those Roman Christians, our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. He tells them to have a future orientation about our salvation as well as the present reality of it and our deliverance from the past sin. And he tells them in Hebrews, uh, Romans 13 11, and that knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of a sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust of He says, Our salvation is near. The full realization of heaven is near. And he says that's your motivation to put off sin. And in Hebrews chapter 6, that's not only our motivation to put off sin, but to incur, to, to, uh, incur perseverance through the trials. Perseverance in the trials. Let me illustrate, illustrate it with the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Keep your finger in 6 there. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 23 Moses Moses By faith Moses when he was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment By faith, Moses, when he grew up, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now listen to this. Choosing rather, choosing instead of being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Verse 26 tells us a little bit of what the thinking processes and the anchoring truths for that decision were. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense or the receiving of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as saying him who is... And visible. Do you see that laser-like focus here? Now, here's the question. If Moses chooses the riches of Egypt, what comes after that? If Moses 
refuses the reproach of Christ, what comes after that? Do you see that relevance for your own life? If you choose a life for this world and its priorities, what comes after that? You've got your reward. That's it. If you choose a life that is revolved around the priorities of Christ and His church in this world, what comes after that? Grasp the promise. Notice in verse 18, he says, Who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. To grasp, to cling to the hope set before us. The hope of when our faith shall be sight. Finally, verse 19 and 20. What hope? What hope you may be wondering? Here's going to tell us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What in the world is he talking about there? Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, here is your hope. And I want you to picture it as an anchor of the soul, he says. Now, there are two things that make an anchor effective. Maybe some of you see uh, uh, people can give me more instruction than that, but I think there's at least two things that make an anchor effective. First of all, what it's made out of. It's got to be made out of something that's, that's strong and sturdy. Right? Strong, firm, secure, solid construction. Good welds. Uh, if it could be forged in one single piece, even better, right? But not only the construction, but the location. Because what good is an anchor if it's just in the sand, right? This anchor is called sure and steadfast. So we can be sure of its construction. And this anchor's location is not one that's dropped down to the bubbly depths of the sea. This is an anchor that's sent up into the heavens for us. Because the anchor is identified in verse 20... As the forerunner who has entered Jesus, the priest, after the order of Melchizedek. This has firm, secure, solid construction, Jesus Christ, perfect without sin, accomplished the work of the cross, resurrected and ascended. And this person, his location is, where, is that he has been placed perfectly in the presence of God. That's what verse 19 says. And which entereth into that within the veil. He's picking up on a picture that maybe you might be familiar with in Israelite's history, where in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, there was a place that separated the compartments of the tabernacle or temple. There was a place that set apart a specific room, a cube-shaped room, as the Holy of Holies, accessible only one time a year through the high priest and the Day of Atonement through the sacrifice of sin for the people. It represented the very presence of God. And in that room was where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and the cherubim that sat on the Ark of the Covenant dwelt, symbolizing the presence of God. And there the presence of God dwelt. When God was with Israel, His presence was pictured as a a, a flame of fire by night and a cloud by day. His, his, His beautiful glory. And at the cross... 
Jesus Christ finished Moses' law. He ripped apart the veil there so that all mankind who put their trust in Jesus' work as their high priest and sacrifice on their behalf can come boldly and to direct access to the Holy of Holies, God of gods, Lord of lords. He has delivered us into the presence of God if you are in Christ. This location of this anchor is anchored in heaven. Placed perfectly in the presence of God. And it is Jesus, our high priest. Notice that it says in verse 20, Whither the forerunner is for us entered. For us. He's our substitute. He's our representative. For us. A forerunner. Now what's a forerunner? A forerunner is somebody who goes on ahead for the purpose of those who are behind him to follow him where he's already arrived. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I go, the forerunner, there ye may be also. Jesus as our high priest is our forerunner. He is, in other words, this is telling us that if you are in Christ, you will follow him there. That's eternal hope. That's the promise set out before you when you don't feel like you can go on anymore. You will follow him there. And we don't want to minimize, we don't want to make light of suffering, but the writer of Corinthians, Paul says, our affliction is but for a moment compared to the scope of eternity. And the scope of eternity vastly outweighs our affliction in this moment. The glory of all eternity. And so we look to the person. We look to the person. There is a person to look unto, and it's Jesus. So why is this important? Because we can't be sluggish. In our Christian lives. We can't say, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I'm good. We can't say, I've been a Christian for 5 years. I'm okay. No, we have to We have to be pressing forward. We have to be looking unto Jesus. We need to think about what is really important to us. What does your time reveal is important to you? What does your money and the way you spend it reveal is important to you? What is the way you use the energy that you have? How does that show what's important to you? What is the way you use your, uh, your mental energy, your thinking on? How does that reveal what's important to you? Do all these things show that you are sluggish? Or do they show you are pressing on in Christ? What about your habits? Your words? When we weigh all these things, where does it show your heart is? One of Jesus' disciples, when God the Father reveals Jesus as Messiah to him, he says, Where else will we go, Lord? You have the words of life. You have the words of life.
The songs you sang, firm foundation, solid rock, dear refuge of my weary soul. And in a moment we have an anchor. All point us to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And this morning I want you to answer this question in your own heart. What is your anchor? What is your anchor? Jesus means everything. There are no blessings that come upon you except through Christ. He is the channel of every blessing. There are no blessings that come upon you except through Jesus Christ. In closing, I'd like you to look to Romans chapter 8 with me. I read the last verses of that powerful chapter. Romans chapter 8. And verse 31. Because you see, this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 reveals the extent of God's love for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? And Romans 8, verse 31 says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, an anchor for our soul. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the promise of eternal glory with you. I pray that you would put that vision before us. It would be to quickly come to our minds and where we sink our hope in the trials and storms of life and the temptations to sin, temptations to grow weary or cold. Help us to remember how much you loved us and the cost of what it took to place an anchor for us in heaven. Jesus, the righteous one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we have here uh, in your yellow insert, the other side we have a song, We Have an Anchor. We Have an Anchor.